0: All right, let's, let's go ahead and, and pray, and then we'll get into the scriptures. Father, we're absolutely dependent upon you as, as we seek to understand your nature and your attributes, your person. We're dependent, Lord, that we're just creatures. We're finite creatures. Our understanding is limited. And you are infinite your understanding is unlimited we ask the lord for grace to to understand your nature better would you draw near today lord Would you give us a greater understanding of your core essence the fact that you're a triune being which is outside of our 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 intellectual capacity lord because we don't know anything else that's like that so give us grace lord let us embrace the mystery of the truth of the Word of God. Show us how your nature can have implications for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Jerome, you will not have to put that up until later. It only comes up, oh, for a few minutes, about two-thirds of the way or three-quarters of the way through Okay, brother? But it, it'll be good at that point. I will. I will. I will. Okay, so we are in a series on the attributes of God. Last week we talked about the self existence of God. And the self existence of God is basically the idea that God is the first cause of everything, He's the uncaused cause. No one caused Him, but He causes everything else. Everything else has a beginning. God has no beginning. It's within it's God's nature to exist. <laughs> and so he simply must and he always has he, And of course that causes the, the shorts our brain our short circuit when we start thinking what what God just always has but that's just the nature of this God that has caused everything. He's the great I am. And because he is self-existent, he's self-sufficient, meaning he doesn't need anything. He has everything that he needs within himself. And if he is self-existent, that means that he's eternal. He has had no beginning and he'll have no end. He never came into existence and he'll never go out of existence. So I think that all of us would agree that we should believe and proclaim the God who has revealed himself in scripture rather than a God of our imagination. Amen. If that's true, then we need to discover who God is and his core essence. And by that I mean the triune nature of God. That's what I want to really focus in with you this morning. The triune nature of God. I think if we went out and just interviewed people on the streets and just asked them, what do you believe about God? We would get lots and lots of different answers, but I want to go over just eight of those answers that you would get really quickly. Number one, you would have people that say, I'm an atheist, I believe in atheism. And so of course that's the belief that there is no God at all, which is actually on the rise. So atheism. Uh, a second one would be agnosticism. And this is the view that it's not possible to know whether there is a God or not. They say, it's just not possible. You can't know that as agnosticism. A third view is polytheism. And this is the view that there are many gods. The ancient Egyptians and the ancient Greek religions were polytheistic. They believed in the various gods of this or the god of that. And even Mormons today would fall under the category of being polytheists because they believe that there are many gods. Uh, The fourth view is pantheism. Pantheism is the view that God is the universe with all of its forces and laws. In other words, God is the stars and the planets and the rivers and the mountains and rocks and lakes and mountains and valleys and animals and people. God is all of that. God is everything that is, that he has made. Some African traditional religions are pantheists and some Native American religions the Native American Indians that lived here. They would be considered pantheists. And then a fifth category is called henotheism. And this is a, a group that I had not heard of before this last week, henotheism. This is the people that believe in many gods, but they are devoted to one particular god out of several. Some Hindus would be considered henotheists, because they believe in many gods, but they worship one God as supreme. And then a sixth view is deism. Deism is the belief in the existence of a supreme being, specifically a creator, but that creator, they say, does not intervene in the universe. Um, It was used chiefly of an intellectual movement in the 17th and 18th centuries. Right around the Revolutionary War, there were a lot of deists, and they, they had an analogy. They said God is like a watchmaker. God made this watch, and he wound it up, and he left that watch to wind down on his own, and he walked away from it forever. So they say God created the world, but then God walked away from the world, and he doesn't intervene in the world in any way whatsoever. We are on our own. That's the view of the deists. And it's usually agreed that several of our founding fathers were deists. They point out people like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson, they would say were deists. And then a seventh view is monotheism. Uh, This is the view that there's only one God. And of course, Jews would be monotheists. Christians are monotheists. And uh, Muslims are also monotheists. And then the eighth view is Trinitarianism. This is a view that I believe the Bible teaches, that there is one true God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Christians are the only ones that hold to this particular view of God out of all the other views. So the man on the street is going to give you one, one of those eight views, probably. My goal this morning is to help you understand, articulate, and defend the truth about the Trinity. When I was thinking about the attributes of God, I thought of, should I, should I spend time doing a teaching on the Trinity? And I thought, eh, maybe not. That's such a basic teaching. Everybody knows it. It's so basic to our understanding as Christians. Am I just wasting my time going over this? And then I started to ask some people, well, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? How would you explain it? And I found that people are not able to do that. They're not able to articulate it. And they're not able to defend it. If someone were to challenge that doctrine, they're not able to defend from Scripture the truth about the Trinity. And so I I changed my mind. I thought this is an important subject for us to go over. We need to be clear on it. We need to understand what the Bible teaches about it. We need to be able to explain it, and we need to be able to defend it if it's challenged. So the way we're going to go about it this morning is I'm just going to ask three questions. Number one, what's the biblical teaching on the triune nature of God? Number two, how have some groups deviated from the triune nature of God? And three, what are some practical implications of the triune nature of God? So first of all, what's the biblical teaching on the triune nature of God? We have to be honest, the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible. It's not found in the Bible. But the word Trinity means triunity, or it means the three in oneness of God. I'm going to give you a working definition of the Trinity. This is how I would put it. God eternally exists in the three distinct persons of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and each of these persons is fully God and there is only one God. Now in that definition, there are three parts that we're going to go over. Remember, the first part is there's only one God. The second part is, God eternally exists in three distinct persons. The third part is, each of those three persons is fully God. So if you embrace those three propositional truths, you believe in the Trinity. If you believe there's one God, if you believe that one God exists in three distinct persons, and if you believe that each of those distinct persons is fully God, you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. So let's let's go to this first proposition. There's only one God. Now, is that true from scripture? As Christians, we take the Bible as our final authority. What does the Bible teach? How many gods are there? Well, this morning, we're going to go over a lot of verses, and I've got them all written down. So what I'd encourage you to do is jot the reference down, because we're not going to have time to look up each one as we go through this. First one is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And this is the statement that the Jews would repeat over and over and over. The Lord is one. Or if we went to the New Testament, we could go to James 2.19. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So James teaches that there is one God. First Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Or we could look at Isaiah 45, verses five and six. Isaiah 45 5 and six. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? God is very clear there. He's explicit. So I think we can agree at this point that the bible is clear it teaches monotheism it does not teach polytheism it does not teach henotheism or all the other theisms that we went over before it teaches monotheism so that one's pretty simple but let's move on to the second propositional truth is it true that god eternally exists in three distinct persons is that true if there are three distinct persons That means that the Father is not the same person as the Son, and it means that the Son is not the same person as the Spirit, and it means that the Spirit is not the same person as the Father or the Son. Let's see if the Scriptures would bear this out. Okay. The Son. Is the Son a distinct person from the Father and the Spirit? Well, John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the word with tells us a lot. In the beginning was the word, and we know from verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. So if Jesus was with God, I believe that is an implication that Jesus is a distinct person from God the Father. If he's with him, he has to be a distinct person. At least in my understanding. And then in John 17, 24, we read that at, at our beginning uh, scripture today. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay, so if God the Father loved Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, that tells me that Jesus is not the same person as the Father, or, or, G, or the Father would just be loving himself. But Jesus says that the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. I believe that's a strong indication that there's a distinction of persons between the Father and the Son. Or John seventeen three, Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Okay, so the Father sent the Son. Is this saying that the Father sent himself? No, it's saying that the Father sent the Son. It, that must mean that the Son is a distinct person from the Father. The Father didn't die for your sins. The Holy Spirit did not die for your sins. Jesus, that distinct person of the other two, is the one who died for your sins. Or we can look at 1 John 2.1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, so in order to be our advocate with the Father, Jesus had to be a distinct person from the Father. If he's to be a mediator between you and God, he can't be the same person as the one he's mediating between. So I think the Bible is clear that, yes, the Son is a distinct person from the Father and from the Holy Spirit. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit a distinct person from the Father and the Son? Well, John 14, 26, Jesus said that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the Father is going to send the Spirit just as the Father sent the Son. And then Jesus says in John fifteen twenty six, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So here, John 15, 26, Jesus says that he's going to send the Spirit, and in John 14, 26, Jesus said that the Father is going to send the Spirit. Well, that tells me that the Holy Spirit can't be the Father, and he can't be the Son, if those two individuals are sending him. So, My conclusion is, yes, the Holy Spirit is also a distinct person from the Father and from the Son. Now, some people seek to cast doubt on whether the Holy Spirit is actually a person. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses come to mind because they teach that the Holy Spirit is not a person, that he's a force or a power. Analogous to electricity. He's the power of God, but not a distinct person. Well, let's think about that for a minute. Remember when Jesus sent his disciples out after he'd risen from the dead in Matthew 28? He gave them the Great Commission. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And then he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, if the Holy Spirit is like electricity, he's saying go baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and, the, and electricity. <laughs> or go baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and power. It's ridiculous on the face of it because it doesn't make any sense. The Father and the Son are, we can assume that they're persons. And because the Holy Spirit is a coordinate person that's linked together with the Father and the Son, there's a strong implication that he also is a person second corinthians 13 14 this is paul's uh conclusion to the letter this is doxology he says the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all again in both of these texts the holy spirit is linked with the father and the son two distinct persons And it gives a strong reason to believe that the Spirit of God is also a person himself. Now, that's not all. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit does things that only people do. The Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, teaches. He bears witness. He intercedes. He can be grieved. He speaks. He loves. He can be blasphemed. He can be resisted. He strives he equips, he directs, he gifts, he regenerates, he inspires, he convicts, he guides, and he discloses, among other things. <laughs> so does electricity love? Does it, can electricity be grieved? Can electricity teach or bear witness? Can, does it strive with us? Uh, it's ludicrous to, to even answer the question. No, only a person does those kinds of things. Those are personal attributes, and they're all ascribed to the Holy Spirit. So these biblical statements strongly teach that the Spirit is a person, and he's a distinct person, just as the Father and the Son are distinct persons. So the second proposition was um, that God eternally exists in three distinct persons, and it seems to me that that is clear also from Scripture that we can say amen to that. Well, the third truth, propositional truth is each of those distinct persons is fully God. Is that true? Well, is the father God? That's a no brainer, right? I mean, how can the father not be God? But if we needed a proof text, <laughs> even though I don't really believe in proof texting, but Ephesians 4, 6 says, there is one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So yes, the Father is God. Well, is Jesus God? Now that has been disputed. It's been debated by different groups throughout the last 2,000 years. What does the word of God say? We already read one of them. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Or John 20, verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And rather than correct Thomas, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Thomas, because, um, how do you put that? <laughs> me. Because, he, yeah, you didn't believe because you saw me. Fine. I left my charger at my cell, my phone's done. I'm going to run and go grab it real quick, okay? Okay. Yeah, Jesus said, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So, Jesus affirms him rather than corrects him or rebukes him. And then Romans 9, 5 says, From whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever? Amen. So, Jesus Christ, according to Paul, is God who is blessed forever. Philippians 2, 5 and 6, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, and we can even just stop there. Jesus existed in the form of God. Or Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Who is Christ Jesus? Our great God and Savior. Or Hebrews 1.8, this is what God the Father says about the Son. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So God the Father says that the Son is God. Or 2 Peter 1:1 to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in Text after text after text, the New Testament ascribes deity, divinity, Godhood to Jesus Christ. Well, you might say, Brian, wait a minute. How can Jesus be God when he said the Father is greater than I? I believe that's in John 14. I don't know which verse it is, but he did say the Father is greater than I. So does that mean that Jesus is not God if the Father is greater than him? That's a really good question. It's true that the Father is greater than Jesus in his role. Because Jesus took the role of the servant. He came to obey and to do the will of the Father. He was sent from the Father. He came in a submissive role to the Father. So in his role, yes, the Father is greater than the Son. But we have to make a distinction between a being and a person. So let me try to explain what I mean by that. A being is what you are, and a person is who you are. I am a human being. That's what I am. But I also am Brian Anderson. That's who I am. I'm a person. Is God the Father more god than Jesus is No both of them are 100% god you can't become more of something than 100% <laughs> Jesus is 100% god the father is 100% god the holy spirit is 100% god so both of them share the the being of divinity of deity but there's a different role that each one of them plays it, The president is greater than I am in his role. But is the president any greater in his being than I am? Is the president of the United States any more human than I am? No, we're both human. We're both 100% human. I can't be any more human than I am. And he can't be any more human than he is. And we can't be any less human than that. According to our being, we are the same. We, We share the same essence of being but according to our role he's much greater than i am he's far more powerful than i will ever be he's the most powerful man on the planet and i'm a nobody so yeah in his role he is greater and i think that's what jesus was trying to communicate okay so i think the scriptures are 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 clear i believe the scriptures are clear about the deity of jesus christ the son is god the father is god well what about the holy spirit And I'll be honest, there are not as many clear texts about the deity of the Holy Spirit as there are about the deity of the Son. But there are texts that show that the Holy Spirit is God. One of them is Acts chapter five, verses three and four. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, the first statement is, Peter uh, Peter says to Ananias, why did you lie to God? I'm sorry, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? That was the first part. And then he follows it up a second later by saying you've lied to God. So to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit must be God. How else could you lie to God by lying to the Holy Spirit unless the Holy Spirit is God? Or 1 Corinthians 3:16. Paul says, Don't you know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now think about what a temple is. The temple of God is the place where God dwells. Wouldn't you agree? That's how we would describe a temple. It's the place where God dwells. Well, here, Peter says, don't you know that you are a temple of God? But then he doesn't say, and God dwells in you. He says, and the spirit of God dwells in you. A strong implication that the spirit of God is God, because God is the one who dwells in his own temple. Further, Jesus taught that we are to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is not God, but is a power or a force, it would be awfully odd for him to say, baptize people in the name of the Father who is God and the Son who is God and the Spirit who is not God. (laughs) That just doesn't add up. So... Yes, the Holy Spirit in Scripture is God. And, Jerome, you can share your screen now, because it will be easier if you share your screen so that I can show you a chart. I came up with a chart that shows attributes of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and divine works of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here we go. Okay. So here we see that all three persons possess the same divine attributes. So if you look on the left-hand column, column, the attribute is eternality. The Father, from Psalm 90, verse 2, is said, His goings forth are from of old, uh, from everlasting to everlasting. The Son in Micah 5:2, that's the one that says his goings forth are from of old, from the days of eternity. And in Hebrews 9:14, it says that. Describes the Holy Spirit as the eternal spirit. They also share the attribute of omnipotence. And here are passages that describe how the father, Revelation eight he's the almighty. The son is called the mighty God in Isaiah 9.6. And in Romans 15.19, the Holy Spirit is described as the power of God. Or all three share the attribute of omniscience. And you can just jot these down if you like, or if you like, I can email you this chart if you don't have time to jot these references down. But I'm just trying to share that if you look at the attributes of God the Father, you're going to find the same attributes as- ascribed to Jesus Christ the Son, and the same attributes will be ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Omnipresence is ascribed to God in Jeremiah 23-24, but Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, so Jesus must be on Omnipresent, if he's with all of his people everywhere they go until the end of the age. And then Psalm 139.7, where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere. He's with me wherever I go. So he's omnipresent. All three share the attribute of being holy. The Father in Exodus 15.11, Jesus in Acts 3.14, and the Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. And goodness is ascribed to all three. In Acts 10.38, it says, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Nehemiah 9.20 refers to the Holy Spirit as the good spirit. Uh, Psalm 105 says that God, the Lord is good. So Father, Son, and Spirit are good. They are filled with truth. They are holy. They're omnipresent. They're omniscient. They're omnipotent. They're all eternal, having no beginning and no end. And that's not all. All three of these persons perform the same divine works. All three were involved in the creation of the world. Genesis 1.1, the Father. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 3 said that the Holy Spirit was moving upon the face of the waters. He was participating in this work. And Jesus says in John 1.3 that, uh, apart from him, nothing has come into existence that has ever come into existence. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all involved in the creation of the world. All three were involved in the creation of man. Genesis 2.7 says that God created man out of the dust of the ground. G, uh, Paul says in Colossians 1.16 that Jesus Christ created all things. And in Job 33.4, it speaks about the Holy Spirit creating man. And then also the resurrection of the dead. The father raises all men. Jesus said that he also raises the dead. And in Romans 11, it says that the spirit of God will raise us up. So these are divine works. Only God can create the world. Only God can create man. Only God can raise the dead. But all all three persons, father, son, and Holy Spirit are acting together to perform these divine works. So we're trying to answer the question, are all three of these persons fully God? And I think, do we just look at scripture alone? We have to answer yes. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Well, the last question. I'm sorry, it's not the last one. We've already answered the last question. <laughs> we're going to move on to the second one. The first one had to do – so we're looking at the biblical teaching on the triune nature of God, and we've seen that the biblical teaching is that there's one God, that that one God has eternally existed in three distinct persons, and all three of those distinct persons are fully God. So if we believe those three points, we're Trinitarians. We're not like Jews. We're not like Muslims. We're Christians. We believe that God has revealed himself in three persons. Now, let's move on to the second issue. How have some groups deviated from the triune nature of God? Men love things they can understand. And drum. you don't have to share your screen anymore. We're done with that particular uh, chart. Men love things they can understand. Early on in the history of the church, some people began to deviate from the biblical teaching on the triune nature of God, because they couldn't stand to live in tension. It didn't make sense to them to say that there was one God, three persons. Now, let me just say this. If we were to say there is one God. Now, let me let me change that up. If we were to say there is one being, and we also said there are three beings that would be a contradiction. Or if we said there's one person and there's three persons, that would also be a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction to say that there's one being and three persons. I don't know if you're following me or not. You're not. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, being has to do with what you are. A person has to do with who you are. So God... God the, the Father is, according to his being, deity. God reveals himself in the Bible as being one being, three persons. We are one being, one person. So we are different. We're in a different class than God is. God is in a whole different class because he's one being, three persons. The very essence of what makes God God is shared in three different persons who have eternally existed and are distinct from one another. We're still confused and we, maybe we'll still always be a little bit confused. Hey man, brother, you're doing good. <laughs> right. I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> but from the very beginning, people have started to deviate from these, these propositional truths. And I'm just going to mention two of them because these two are still around today the first is modalism and modalism is the teaching that says there's only one God and that the father son and Holy Spirit are all fully God so far so good but they deny that the father son and Holy Spirit are distinct persons from one another that's where they deviate from the Mm. teaching of the Trinity they teach that God is only one person and that one person appears in three different modes, hence the term modalism. So in the Old Testament, God appeared as father. The same person appeared as the son when Jesus came to the earth. And the same person appeared as the Holy Spirit after Jesus rose from the dead. So they liken God to be an actor on the stage who changes clothes and appears as three different characters on a, in a play. Mm-hmm. So he's the same person, but he just appears as different individuals in this particular movie or this play that is going on. Sometimes this particular doctrine is referred to as Sabellianism, and that's because it was introduced by a man named Sibelius, who lived in Rome in the early third century. He taught this particular doctrine. Uh, the, the Christian Church has by and large rejected and repudiated this teaching But it still exists today. Uh, In 1916, there was a group that broke away from the Assemblies of God denomination. The Assemblies of God required that all their ministers hold to a Trinitarian statement of faith. And there was a group of ministers that would not agree to that statement of faith. And so they broke away from the Assemblies of God. And in time, their group became known as the United Pentecostal Church or Oneness Pentecostal Church. You may have heard of this particular group. In fact, our church used to rent office space on Folsom Boulevard from the United Pentecostal Church. That particular denomination holds to modalism. They believe that there's only one person, not three distinct persons. That one person has gone by different names throughout the centuries, but it's all one person, not three distinct persons. And they, you, you may have heard of the illustration. Some people say this is a good illustration for the Trinity. Um, the same man may happen to be a father, a son, and an employee, but it's all the same person. Well, that's actually not a good illustration for the Trinity. It's a good illustration for modalism, because it's teaching that it's the same person. There's one person who reveals himself in three different modes, employee, father, and husband. So. So that is not what the Bible teaching. The Bible's teaching that God exists in three distinct persons, all sharing the same essence of deity. The second deviation from Trinitarian teaching is Arianism, and it comes from a man by the name of Arius, who lived in the early 300s AD. This is the teaching that denies that the Son and the Holy Spirit are fully God. Arius was the bishop of the Church of Alexandria. He taught that God created the Son. And before that time, the Son and the Spirit did not exist. So he he taught God's first and greatest creation was the Son, and then God and the Son together created the Holy Spirit. He emphasized texts which stated that Jesus Christ was the only begotten Son, And he said, well, if he's begotten, that means there must have been a time when he did not exist and God brought him into existence. He appealed to Colossians 1:15, which mentions Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. Well, if Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, he says, then there was a time when he didn't exist and God created him. In 319 AD, Bishop Alexander called a meeting of the elders. And he was discussing the father, the son, and the spirit when he was interrupted by Arius. And Arius announced, if the father begat the son, then he who was begotten had a beginning existence. And from this, it follows that there was a time when the son was not. This erupted into a huge debate with all kinds of controversy. And eventually, Emperor Constantine, who was only interested really in maintaining the peace, he convened a council in Nicaea to try to settle the issue, because there was a lot of people that believed what Arius believed, and there was a lot of people that believed that uh, the the Son was not created, but was actually God. Only 400 of those 1,800 bishops who were invited came to this meeting, and at the meeting, Arius stood up, repeated his views about God. There was all kinds of debate. Finally, as a result of that meeting, an Athanasius was a of the key players there um there was a creed that was written and the creed says this we believe in one god the father almighty maker of all things visible and invisible and in one lord jesus christ the son of god begotten of the father only begotten that is from the substance of the father god from god light from light very god from very god begotten, not made, and that was the crucial three words that were inserted to to deny what Arius was teaching, begotten, not made, and those who say there was a time when he was not, and he did not exist before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, the Catholic Church anathematizes. In other words, they say that that is completely contrary to the word of God, and it comes under its condemnation. So in the end, I'm just giving you a little history lesson here, but in the end, Constantine ordered all the books of Arius to be burned, quote, so that his depraved doctrine shall be entirely suppressed and so that there shall be no memorial of them left in the world, end quote. From that time on, the Christian church has embraced the, the doctrine that Jesus Christ is deity, that he is just as much God as the Father is and that the Holy Spirit is. However, we still have Arianism being taught today by the Jehovah's Witnesses. They teach that Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God, and that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but a force or a power. Essentially the same thing that Arius was teaching so many hundreds of years ago. It still exists today. So those are two popular deviations that we still see. The third question that I want to, to seek to tackle is what are some implications of the triune nature of God? Is there anything practical that we as Christians can draw from, from this biblical truth that the God is three distinct persons but share the same essential nature? Well, I think there are. Number one, we can have a relationship with God because we've already said God is a person. The Father, Son, and Spirit are persons, And a person can have a a relationship with another person. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed together throughout eternity in a relationship of perfect love and unity. We saw that from John 17, 24. And if God exists in three distinct persons, well, what are the characteristics of a person? A person loves, hates, is grieved, rejoices, makes rational decisions. And of course god does all of those things he loves hates rejoices makes rational decisions so do we we do all of those things and because god is personal we can have a personal relationship with him which is a wonderful truth if i was a deist i'd have to say there's no possible way i can have any relationship with god because god made the world and then he left it forever and has nothing to do with it but i'm not a deist i'm a christian I believe in a personal God and that I can have a relationship with that personal God. Praise God. If God were only a cosmic force, I could have no relationship with him. But God is a personal. Yes, true. He's a person that is far different from I am, but he shares personality. So we're back again to the idea of of communion with God that we started the year 2021 with. God wants communion with us. He created human beings to be persons. In that respect, we are like God. We're persons and we can relate to one another. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Think about that. If anyone loves God, if anyone loves Jesus, he's going to keep Jesus' word. And Jesus and the Father are going to come to him, and they're going to make their abode. That means their home. They're going to make their home with that person. That's talking about communion, relationship, knowing one another. So Christianity is not simply knowing a few facts about God, but it's also coming into a personal intimate relationship with God where he discloses himself to us and we disclose ourselves to him and there's this growing knowing of him. Jesus said in John 17:3, "This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent." So folks, it's vital that we know the attributes of God. Right, It's vital that we know what God has revealed about himself in scripture, but there's another kind of knowledge of God as well, and that's this relationship. There's, we need both. Both are vital. We need to know what the Bible says about him, but we also need to enter into a, a deepening relationship through prayer and worship and uh, devotional reading so that we're speaking to God and God is speaking to us. So I don't want you to settle for anything less than this full relationship with God, because that's what God wants with you. A second implication of the Trinity is that we can learn how to relate to one another. And we can do this in marriages, and families, in churches, and in work relationships. Okay, let's take marriage, first of all. And this is good, because... In a marriage, you have husband and a wife. They are both human beings because they're both human beings, fully human beings. Neither one is superior to the other because they both share the same essence, the same being. But they do share different roles. God has given the husband a different role than the wife. The husband is the head of the family. The wife is his helpmate. God has called the husband to lead. He's called the wife to submit. Those are both biblical roles that are given to them. Neither one is superior to the other. Um, By us taking a submissive role is not demeaning, and it's not a sign of inferiority. It simply happens to be the will of God for different persons. So what I'm getting from this is that sometimes it can be hard to be the one that's in a submissive role. If you're an employee and you have an employer who is the leader in that particular relationship, sometimes it can be hard because you have to take direction and orders from somebody else. If you happen to be a wife in a marriage, that can be hard because you're not the one making the decisions. The final decision comes from the husband as the leader of the relationship. Or in families, children can say, this stinks to be a kid because I can't do whatever I want. My parents tell me what to do. In all of these relationships, Look at the Trinity as as the model for godliness in your life. Was Jesus Christ inferior to the Father because he was sent and he came, the sent one of the Father, to do the will of the Father? If you are in a submissive relationship, look to Jesus and it will sweeten. It'll take the sting out of that difficulty that you're experiencing and give sweetness in it because Christ himself There's no more beautiful example in all the world than Jesus Christ, yet he assumed that role and he assumed it gladly and voluntarily and he did it perfectly. So he is our example when it comes to needing to submit in a particular relationship. We can learn to relate to one another in various relationships by looking at the order of the persons of the Trinity. And then the last implication from the Trinity is that we can have great confidence in our salvation because our salvation was wrought out for us by father son and spirit and in the Bible the father son and spirit have different roles in our salvation Ephesians 1 4 says that the father is the one who chose us before the foundation of the world in verse 7 it says that Jesus is the one who redeems us by his blood And in verse 13 and 14, it says that the Holy Spirit's role is to seal us for the day of redemption. We also learn from other passages that it's the Spirit's role to sanctify us. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't all doing the same thing. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit seals. But notice that the work of salvation in our lives is not done by an inferior creature but by God almighty himself. And folks, I don't know about you, but I feel like I need God to be the one that saves me. If if it was Michael the archangel that was sent to save me by dying on a cross, I would always have some doubt whether it was going to be any good. But if the self-existent one, the uncaused cause, the one who always has been himself wrought out my salvation I can't lose. It's. It, it, I will be saved if God himself is the one who has saved me. Because God doesn't make mistakes. God cannot fail. If God has undertaken to save me, I can be confident that he will complete that salvation that he began in my life. Because Jesus is fully God. His precious blood completely removes my sin. If Jesus is God, there, there's an infinite value to the blood that he shed on my behalf. And that infinite value completely covers and removes my transgressions and my guilt before the Father. Because the Holy Spirit is God, when he seals me, I'm secure. I'm like an envelope that he's sealed. You can't open it unless you pry that thing open. And the only, body, the only person who can is God himself. Jesus himself said that no one can snatch us out of his hand. Nobody can do it. So I want to leave you with that thought. I want to leave you with the thought that if the doctrine of the Trinity is true, that the father, the son, and the Holy spirit have different roles concerning you. You can trust them. You can be confident that their work on your behalf is fully able and will result in your being with him forever. Just as Jesus prayed, Father, I pray that they would be with me so that they would see my glory, the glory which you gave to me before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for showing us who you are, even though even though there is still mystery and there's still tension, because we're finite creatures trying to understand an infinite being, there's still mystery, but Lord, at least we have these truths made clear in your word. There is only one God. That one God exists in three distinct persons, and all of those persons are fully God. We see those truths from scripture, Lord, and so we hold on to them, and we put them all together and say we believe in a God who is three in one, three persons in one being, and Lord, I pray that you'd help us to continue to go deeper to really understand your nature as far as we can and really develop that personal relationship with you day by day by spending time with you in prayer and in your word and in worship and praise and in the church, Lord. So continue to work in us, Lord, to will and to do of your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.